I'm Lisa. I'm Laura. And we do a podcast called Lean Back. I'm a professor at the U of A in the communication department, and I direct the gender studies program. Um, I'm a chronically underemployed millennial. <laughs> uh, I'm, a, I'm a server and um, a bartender at a couple of local restaurants, which is unfortunate enough on its own, but it's partic- particularly unfortunate right now because my foot is broken. <laughs> so. <laughs> It's uh, a pleasure to have you all here tonight, um, especially because that's our topic of conversation, pleasure. So Laura, um, I think probably we should start defining pleasure and the kinds of pleasure that we want to talk about tonight. Right. I I think there are like two main types of pleasure. There's like a sensory gratification. It's like when you eat something delicious or it's like orgasm or it's like drinking and drugs. I, it's like stuff that's easily <laughs> obtained and uh, easy to overindulge in, and um, it really doesn't require any personality or like cognitive capacity to enjoy that kind of pleasure. Like laboratory rats experience that kind of pleasure, and then there's also like um, a, a type of pleasure that's very intentional. It's like not a sensory gratification. It's like a pleasure uh, in an object, or um, it, it requires personality or interest or investment in something. Um, Sex is an obvious frame for talking about pleasure in these different kinds of ways. Like there's a delight in the company of another person, presumably someone that you like and spending time with them, becoming intimate with them, um, discovering things about them. And then there's like the sensory gratification of orgasm. Um, and I'm sure we could talk about eating and fucking all day. But <laughs> I, I really think it's the intentional pleasure that's that's more compelling. But I, I wonder, I wonder if it's indulgent to be talking about pleasure, especially when pleasure is inaccessible or hard to come by for a lot of folks. And, and I wonder if it's indulgent to talk about pleasure in light of the recent natural disasters or in light of the fact that um, a lot of the lives of people living in poverty is extremely precarious or in light of um, the the recent policy making that is kind of an attack on human rights should we should we be talking about pleasure and if, if so why is it important i mean i guess for me there's a social and historical context for pleasure in the american experience especially that's rooted in sort of this deep puritanical culture that we come out of that's about not just the pursuit of pleasure but the the denial of pleasure and the shaming of pleasure. And so I think that it's useful to think about um, the utility of pleasure in a context that has changed from that, but it seems to me that 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 deep context really shapes the way that we understand pleasure as a historical phenomenon as something that we struggle and grapple with now so I, it's my, I don't know, I guess it's my opinion that 
the stigmas associated with pleasure and the pain that goes along with pleasure and the domestication and disciplining of pleasure are part of the program of nationalism and that nations actually mostly regulate that. So even when we think about sort of these fleeting pleasures that we have that are sensory or even <laughs> or even the cultivation of intentional pleasures that are more higher order, it, it seems to me that, that those are, are still being shaped by regulatory regimes that are about the nation and about the state. So I think we need to talk about those things, but also we need to understand both our limitations and you know our capacities to engage pleasure and how those are being controlled outside of the body. I also think that when we think about pleasure, when you think about moderation as the way that Americans talk about pleasure in a way that's super culturally specific, right? It's just like all of the sloganeering about pleasure is about you know moderation and you know everything and it's you know in, in, in small bits. And so there is, I think, despite this raging overconsumption, in American culture than this like bizarro land, you know, feeling about about moderating, you know, pleasure. And so, yeah, so for me, it's highly culturally, you know, specific in the U.S. context. But I guess that raises a question about the relationship between pleasure and pain and pleasure and disciplinary regimes. Yeah, I mean, the puritanical approach uh, to sex and pleasure, which is still really pervasive in our cultural mindset, is really frustrating because I feel like pleasure is the biological impetus for sex. Like, <laughs> pleasure is what encourages you to have more sex. Not reproduction, Laura? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the more you have sex, the more you reproduce. So, I mean, this, this like, thing about controlling pleasure, policing pre pleasure in order to, like, keep sex about reproduction uh, just genetically speaking doesn't make any sense um, so it, it seems to me that that uh, pleasure is perceived as kind of a threat to like civil civilization building um, so it's led us to this point where pleasure is like hyper policed so I mean we, we see the continuation of anachronistic legislation um, that polices sex acts and expressions of sexuality still um, we see it in homophobia, the lack of attention uh, towards female sexuality, and funding towards female healthcare, um, and the perpetuation of heteronormative, hyper rigid uh, sex practices, sex culture, and expressions and depictions of sexuality. Yeah, I mean that's that's what I'm talking about. I mean, there's there's the sensorial pain that's part of pleasure, right? As it's dual opposite but there is the way in which you know legislation and disciplinary regimes enact this price about pleasure which makes I think at least in the American experience pleasure as often a radical act like there is a radical potentiality in pleasure especially with this puritanical history that we have that makes it right for interrogation but when I was thinking about pain too not just from the you know state side the regulatory side I was also thinking about the Marquis de Sade Right, who wrote extensively about pleasure and all of its manifestations, and who who would write frequently about the only way to arrive at pleasure is through pain. And so it seems to me that if we talk about pleasure, we have to think about it as co-constitutive with pain. So the only way that you can experience pleasure is to move through states of pain, either in anticipation or in frustration or in uh, you know withholding. But it's it's an emancipatory thing that 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 pain can be emancipatory, but it also is about anticipation, you know, and suffering, certainly. I mean, I, th I think about people who, get who derive their pleasure from martyrdom, 
you know, and who toss all of their emotional and care energy into codependence or over over parenting or you know that sort of mode of over engagement and especially in this culture that often turns to women right to do that intense emotional caring which is pleasurable and painful at the same time right it's almost unbearable that kind of over investment i think it's interesting too that like a lot of punishment in our our culture is about like the removal of pleasure so like for you know, child rearing, you're grounded is like um, a major uh, strategy of punish, punishing your kids. Like, you can't have access to the TV shows you like, or no phones, no iPads now, I guess. Or, you know, like, you can't go out and see your friends. So, a removal of pleasure in that way. And I mean, the penal system, of course, is a removal of the, the pleasures that you have access to um, outside of prison. And solitary confinement as an extreme form of the removal of pleasure as well. As somebody who writes about prison for a living, uh, you know, I think a lot about the prison and the way in which solitary or just confinement generally is about removing people from the pleasures of community and solidarity and also the pleasures of the flesh. I mean, they all go together as things that are being denied as, as you know, the regime of powers of Tanticon sort of exerts itself in our communities. Um, and it seems to me that given the way that the American political system is arranged around the prison, it absolutely undermines our ability to create communities that value pleasure, you know, in a mode of solidarity in that community building sort of sustainable way. I feel like the way that our society is organized around like the acquisition of objects and money <laughs> and this weird small parameter of success contributes to like a corrosion of personality yeah, totally. of your personality and when that's the case it leads to extreme alienation you know and the inability to feel pleasure with other people there's a lot of self-loathing involved in that too because it is actually hard to acquire all the things i feel like the experience of pleasure requires an active engagement with yourself and with the object of pleasure and that's that's very difficult when you hate yourself yeah i was talking to my students the other day and i and i said i used to ask my students the very first day of class what are you curious about and i stopped because they stopped being curious about things like they literally would not say things that they were curious about and it got so absurd that i had a student and i said what are you curious about and he said plaid and I, I said, I'm never going to do this again. I mean, <laughs> you know. And so, of course, the class left because I'm like recalling this the other day. And I said, you know, do you look around and think, oh, look, look at all these vibrant alive people who have these diverse interests, and they're just following all these in interesting rabbits down the holes and about themselves. And they're like, no, I feel totally alienated and alone on this campus, and I don't know who I'm supposed to be. And we have this thing called the quarter life crisis, and at 25, we're freaked out about who we're going to be and where we're going to work and how much money we're going to make and if we're going to be able to pay off our student loan debt. And so I feel like there's a kind of, I'm writing right now about chronopolitics and about the politics of time and about thinking about the way in which desire and pleasure are structured by time. Because if you're, if you're instantaneously being gratified and Amazon's going to deliver it to your doorstep in 24 hours, that changes the way that your regulatory regime, like inside of your body, understands its own desire. So if you're constantly getting exactly what you want, you think you want in this like consumerist mode all the time, one click, buy, one click, buy, one click, buy, you don't have to wait for anything. And so there is no anticipation. <laughs> and if you don't have the anticipation, then you don't have the pain of waiting and then you don't have the satisfaction and gratification of getting the pleasure. So I feel like 
that kind of overindulgence in consumptive culture is really undermining our ability to cultivate healthy pleasures and healthy desires. And I don't mean healthy in that like new agey way, right, where we're all supposed to eat rice cakes all day and love it. I don't mean that, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I, I really like the way that we talk about guilty pleasures as a way to like access, access pleasure. Because um, I feel like we live in a culture of criticism like we define ourselves more by what we don't like or like make friends more often by like what things you don't like rather than what you actually do like. And there's even a, a, like a new dating app called, called Hater where you're matched with a partner based on the things that you say you don't like. Like John Mayer. Right? Yeah. So like John I can find everybody, everybody else in America who wants yeah. to bond over I that think, guy I trash. I think one of the things is like wearing socks with sandals. And this is like absurd. I mean, you just connect over things that you don't want. One thing is that you d cannot like on the app is condoms. Uh, and so, I mean. Like that's automatic? Like if to join the community, you have to be anti-condom? I think it just gives you a list of things. And I mean, you can, I, I mean, maybe do 10 and, or maybe go through the whole list. I'm not sure, but one of them is condoms. One thing I, you know, I don't like is sexually transmitted infections. <laughs> I feel like I feel like if I guilty said, pleasure. <laughs> I feel like if I said uh, I didn't like sexually transmitted infections on the app, like anyone who says they don't like condoms should automatically be disqualified from matching. But but this whole thing is a symptom of like a it's a larger problem. Like it's considered too earnest to like express oh. your unqualified like of something, totally. uh, or it's a sign of weakness. So, like, I mean, for every time I hear someone say that they like, they really like something, I probably hear 15 instances of people complaining about something. So uh, there's this uh, vulnerability in expressing um, pleasure. And I, li I like guilty pleasures because it's like, um, they give us permission a little bit <laughs> to, to be open about what we like. And I think that opens the door for uh, being more and more vulnerable uh, about about the things that we like and the things that bring us pleasure and about our experiences of pleasure. I mean, you know, I'm down with vulnerability. We've done an episode on that because that's like totally my jam. But I also feel like this thing where we don't do vulnerability is really eroding our ability to connect uh, and do intimacy, right? Because if you can't show that you like somebody, like, okay, so you're going to wait to text, but then you're not going to ask them in person. But then we're back to this thing where adult people are talking to our friends about whether or not so-and-so likes you. I mean, it's, it just strikes me as completely and totally absurd that you that there is this mode of engagement right now that is about not showing affection or attraction or interest or desire in the other. That's freaky. Like, from a communication perspective, <laughs> it's real bad <laughs> to relate to people. People that way, where you can't actually demonstrate care, kindness, or concern, or affection, or attraction, and so it's almost like dating itself has become a guilty pleasure, like a thing we fantasize about but no longer do. Where there's an entire fantasy, you know, land operating, which is of course part of pleasure. Part of pleasure is about the fantasy, right? I mean, that's where we get our satisfaction from. Is like the fantasy of the thing that never actually comes, and I mean that is a double entendre. Um, and you know, there's this way in which we're engaging this fantasy of closeness without being able to actually do the closeness. So our guilty pleasures then manifest almost exclusively in the sensorial, right? So that's the drinking and the drugs and the pornography and the sex and the tactile pain, right? That becomes part of like what, what can be the apparatus of BDSM culture. There are these ways in which electrifying the body has to stand in for the emotional closeness and intimacy that is really what, you know, is the bedrock of solidarity and 
and, and community, you know, cohesion. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, I just feel like we don't even talk about pleasure enough or prioritize it in our lives. <laughs> and I feel like it's partially a lack of imagination because pleasure is complicated. It's hard to describe. Um, it's contingent. It yeah. changes over time. Absolutely. You can't measure it. There's a lot of subtlety and nuance um, involved in the experience of pleasure, which would make it difficult enough to describe, even if it weren't hyper-controlled or like hard to access because of our culture. Money, on the other hand, is easy to quantify and easy to describe. And so I feel like it's become like the central value that we organize our lives around because it's just easier to do that. I mean, I guess that gets to questions of how we define ourselves and what the self is and how the self functions and what its relationality is to other people. Um, and, you know, obviously we, we also did an early episode on play because that's like my mode of engagement pretty much 24-7 is play as a way of circumventing some of these um, roadblocks and means of sabotage that are pretty much part and parcel of the way in which most people communicate. So I like thinking about play as an avenue towards pleasure, right? That circumvents some of these like really tired scripts, technological scripts of the culture. I also think about how we sabotage our own pleasure. Like how do we do that? How do we step on our own dicks basically, you know, to destroy our ability of actually accessing the actual thing that we want? Cause I just see that 24 seven as a mode of like, oh, well, if I do want a thing, um, then what? Then what will people think about me? What if I pursue it? What if I fail? And then so people get stuck both in the cycle of self-loathing and then into this perpetual motion, right? That chronopolitics all the time trying to, to destroy the thing that you want, right? By sabotaging it. I think that that's a huge part of consumption culture for sure. Sure. And I also think that it, it helps us, it helps to mystify what the threshold is for pleasure. So if you're constantly sabotaging, right, not getting close, not getting close, not getting close, not doing intimacy, not doing intimacy, not doing intimacy, what is your threshold for pleasure? It changes. It, you're basic, basically, people are retraining their brains and rewiring them away from solidarity and away from intimacy as a way of destroying their ability to connect with others so they can be the shitty communicator that they know that they are, right? It becomes a self, sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, I think there's this uh, conflation between consumption and pleasure that kind of gets in the way gets in the way of pleasure there's like a type of pleasure seeking that's very immediate and ignores like long-term benefit or the ability to feel pleasure long term and we see that a lot with addiction or addictive substances or i mean things that are addictive outside of that like the amazon button shopping buying things so i, I feel like that, that has a lot to do with self-loathing but i mean that's the whole reason that we're doing this project is because narratives like lean in are perpetuating this kind of self-loathing in a culture where the primacy of money organizes our lives, um, the primacy of careers um, and material success. I feel like in a culture where that's the case and, and in a culture that doesn't allow most people to achieve that kind of material success or wealth, people blame themselves so it just is a bad cycle of self-loathing and, and in some ways addiction and that like reckless pleasure seeking and I'm not saying like everyone should exercise moderation right I'm saying that it's like an erasure of the self because they can't handle you know like they leaned in 
and the results left something to be desired. So it's it feels like a personal failure. And how do you handle that? I mean, a lot of people erase it. I like play because it's process oriented and not goal oriented. And consumption is goal oriented. And if you lose sight of the process by which you become human, then you cease to become human. You can no longer perform the tasks of constantly reemerging out of your chrysalis and reinventing yourself. So it makes us um, more vulnerable certainly to self-loathing, but also it makes it harder for us to adapt and maneuver and, I don't know, just occupy different kinds of space. We talk a lot on the show about imagination and how the culture is full of people who can't imagine new futures. And and right now, this whole political moment that we're living in is so hyper-compressed. The news cycle is constant. It's 24-7. The political cycle and the election cycle is 24-7. That kind of chronopolitics means that we are not able to think about futures at all, our own or other people's. And so when you think about it from the structural level, that's one thing that's happening is so we're not doing 10-year economic forecasts anymore. We're doing two years. Well, you can, hold, you can hide a whole lot of bad shit if you are not doing 10-year projections of what policy proposals will do to people. Right? And if we're not thinking about that from a political standpoint, that's why we can't talk about climate change. Right, It's too futuristic. We can't think about the future. We don't give a shit about the fact that we're overfishing the seas or that you know cows are shitty to eat and they're destroying us. We can't talk about any of that stuff because it's so futurist and we're so hyper-presentist. So that from a structural level, that's a problem politically. But from an interpersonal level, that means you can't think about who to couple with. Or if you're going to have kids, or you know, or your future as an employee, or a worker, a laborer, or somebody who's going to do solidarity work in your community, nobody can think that way. Which is why you've got all these people who are totally in crisis. Who are they? How do they fit in? How do they even learn how to think about themselves as a future being? How can you anticipate what you're going to want? How can you do the introspective, self-reflexive work? of being in the world as a future human. Nobody is, th literally nobody is thinking that way. And if they do, it's only about work and debt. That those are the frames, the dominant frame. They are the dominant frames for how they see themselves as future people. So it's no wonder that the culture is so anxious and so medicated and so freaked out and so you know, caught up into this fast-paced consumer thing as a way of numbing out you know, that real serious anxiety about what the future looks like. And I think in terms of dating, it's why you've got Tinder. You know, I tell my students all the time, people use Tinder differently. Men use Tinder because they think that they're going to get laid. And women sit around and get drunk and say no. That's all they do is just swipe. Nope, <laughs> nope, nope. Because then they have some control, right? It's not going to get them killed to say no. That's not about futurity. It's not even about the future of the immediate moment. It's, it's a technological numbness. It's a way of not connecting. It's an anti-intimacy technology that's speeding up the way that we want to think. It's like cutting to the chase. Well, if, if, if the pleasure is sex, which it is, it's not very pleasurable to start with sex. Like, it's not. <laughs> if that's the only thing that's on the table, that becomes very dull very quickly. And so a bunch of people are like, why, don't, why does this not feel good to Tinder? I don't know, because anticipation and frustration are part of what creates satisfaction. If you're not frustrated by the chase, then there's no investment. You're not investing anything in it. So nobody's getting anything out of it. It's a null set, right? I'm saying most of the intimacy culture that we're living within is a giant, empty, null set, right? Where people are not talking the same language. They're not talking about futures. They're not thinking about their own pleasure. They're certainly not thinking about somebody else's pleasure, right? That's certainly, it's like not even part of their future. It's like, how can I provide pleasure to others? Not a question anybody asks ever one time. You can ask it in the Q&A, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
right? It just seems to me that there is a lot to the constitution of pleasure that is about not getting the thing that you want. And if the culture is entirely intent on servicing you the thing that you want as fast as possible, you're going to be really disappointed every single time about what that is, right? You didn't have to work for it. You didn't have to wait for it. You didn't have to save up your money to get your ears pierced. I mean, just think about the little things when you were tiny that your parents conditioned you to wait for. That waiting is super important. I like that you brought up play, too, because I, I really do think that is a good way to access um, pleasure and also, like, desire. I think our the definition of play that we use requires a lot of active engagement and a lot of self-understanding. and Reciprocity. Reciprocity, right. And um, a lot of people frame play in this different way where it's very passive, like going to the movies or listening to a podcast, no, <laughs> which is the worst, <laughs> um, or watching your football team. I, I think that a lot of it is because work, work takes up a lot of our mental space because we're framing our lives around material wealth and consumption. If we had more active energy, we'd be able to make a sustained effort at, at personally experiencing pleasure or trying to work towards it. I mean, my, my work, however unskilled and transactional it is, occupies all of my mental energy when I'm on the clock. So, I mean, I have no time to think about my own needs or my own interests. And it's exhausting in a way that takes away some of my mental resources uh, when I'm not at work so that it's harder to, to think about my desires or to develop intellectually. Um, or work on my own projects. So, I mean, that's part of what other people are experiencing too, and why they're unable to think about the future and why they're engaging in, in all these passive pursuits that aren't very satisfying. I'm into leaning back, <laughs> obviously. I was saying to my mom on the way over here, I was saying, you know, I'm one of the very few people that I know that can balance work and play like really hard. Like I work and play super, super hard. But I think it's because the academy at least offers some kind of space where you can marry, you know, a real foundational ethical center with uh, life inside and outside of work. But for most people, because even the academy is speeding up in terms of its chronopolitics and how fast you have to publish, the expectations to get a job, how many students that you have, you know, how many conferences you attend, all of those things are making it very difficult, I think, for people to sustain real intellectual engagement because it's really about the product and not the process. And one of the things I think is really tragic about this political moment as a as a political context is that the inability to think about the future and to do futurity and to imagine new futures means that it's going to take massive, massive ecological crisis to really shift our unhealthy obsession with work and this fast-paced thing. I mean, it's that's what there's nothing else that's going to break it. I don't think you're just going to see generations until that crisis comes that are going to be hyper, hyper, hyper consumerist as the way of understanding sort of their investment in, in the world and the kind of space that they feel like they can take up and. I mean, that just seems to me to be incredibly tragic. I guess best case scenario is that, you know, the lid gets blown off the Trump administration and, you know, he's unmasked, you know, as the monster that he is for America, the sooner the better. But I, even that I don't think is going to be any anything of the kind of reckoning that would help us restructure our relationships to pleasure and pain, really. I mean, he's a lusty man. He likes, <laughs> he likes pleasure. <laughs> It's just, I mean, that's the most generous read that he's lusty. (laughs) 
I would have said rapey, but you know, okay, lusty. Yeah, but it's part of the thing where pleasure is not accessible to everyone. The interesting thing I think about Trump is that you never hear about his mother. I think the erasure of Trump's mother from any narrative about him is such a total red flag about his inability to connect and be intimate with people generally, but his mother and women specifically. I mean, that is a huge red flag to me. That dude had no healthy relationship with his parents. He has he was given every single thing that he ever wanted. He was overindulged as a kid. He never had to wait. He got into every you know everything that he ever wanted to get into. He bought his way into these things. His kids did the same thing. I mean, there is no ethical or moral center whatsoever. So what does it mean that half of America is like, yeah, that guy, we want that guy. More of that guy. <laughs> I mean, that tells you a lot about sort of what 50% of America has to say about their relationship to the future and to themselves. I mean, that's a, the, the vote for Trump strikes me as such a totally self-indulgent fantasy of power. <clears throat> and I've talked about this on other, just so briefly on some of the other podcasts about thinking about white, white people in particular, right? White men and white women who voted for him. And white women are like, oh, okay, <laughs> that guy will make decisions and take care of the things and money things, right? Because they feel precarious in a culture that's browning. And that's true. They feel that way. <clears throat> and white dudes just have aspirational politics, right? So their desire comes from aspiring to be the asshole, the pussy grabber. That's what they want to be that. They want to live in a world where they're never going to be punished for, for doing whatever they want, whenever it strikes them. That's, that's the culture that they want to live in, right? Immediate gratification that is defined entirely by their immediate want. That is really scary. <laughs> it's really scary to think about it from a, like that kind of theoretical level that we're surrounded by all of these people who just want to be able to indulge themselves, you know, regardless of the cost to themselves or other people. I mean, it's such a, su such a self-indulgent perspective or orientation, you know? And it's not, and it's ultimately about that kind of fleeting pleasure. It's so anti-humanist. <laughs> it's just grotesque, you know. And that's, and that is, that is actually a fundamental desire structuring half of America and a ton of white people. Is that desire towards violence, that the pleasure of of violence as something that's visceral that can be enacted, and something that's spectatorship that you can see. I th I talk about this a little bit in class about what what it means when like the major serial programs on TV are just like dead white chicks. It's like CIS, SVU, blah blah blah, dead white chicks on TV all the time. So you've got dead white chicks, right? You've got actual anti-brown and black violence publicly splattered everywhere all the time. Super abjection. You've got queer violence everywhere, super public. The fact that America is the largest producer of handguns and we let our kids die by them is crazy as hell. That is crazy. But it's a structure of pleasure, right, that allows all of those things to exist here in ways that they do not exist similarly in other countries. It's, it's structural. That pleasure is structural. It's a lot to think about. Um, I think... <laughs> It's not so bad. <laughs> my name's Debbie Downer. I'm I'll be here all night. <laughs> I'm going to go break my other foot so I don't have to leave the house. <laughs> Can apply for disability. Who's numbing out after this? <laughs> yeah, I guess I want to say one more thing. I think the last thing that I want to say is that I think that there is an intense relationship between pleasure and security and pleasure and insecurity. And so that last rant 
you know, about sort of the politics of, of the pleasures that structure the nation is really about navigating hyper insecurity in an age where all of the, you know, historically structuring relations between and among people are really eroding. And in some good ways. I mean, like, right, the, this whole thing is a reaction to the black guy president. It's a reaction to gay marriage. It's a reaction to white women being the largest recipients of affirmative action. It's a reaction to the browning of America. And the things that create insecurity also then restructure pleasure around violence. And that's that seems to me to be the biggest takeaway of this political moment is like when you see white people celebrating, you should be real concerned. <laughs> you know, if white people are getting together doing some sort of celebration, violence is happening. And I, I was thinking about it this week because of the Little Rock set commemoration. I kind of freaked out on the internet a little bit. Because here you have Little Rock, you know, Central High, which is basically in the exact same position it was in 57, 58, 59, and the segregation of Little Rock, which looks exactly the way that it did then. And you're going to have a commemoration, a celebration, it's like a bunch of congratulatory white people talking about how much progress we've had. I mean, it's just totally grotesque. But that, those kinds of commemorations that are about memory and remembering and about good white liberalism, <laughs> about this sort of impulse of Americans, white Americans in particular, to think that they've come so far is really damaging. So, I, you know, I think for me, another red flag is progress. People are talking about progress. Violence is happening every single time. And it's violence by white people to serve their own needs and their own pleasures. I mean, these people are not asking what kind of world do we want to live in? No. Or what kind of world sh should we build? They're like, I'm scared. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not doing very well for myself. I mean, they're so single-mindedly invested in their own personal advancement. And there's no larger thought about what would actually make things yeah. better for them outside of that. On the one hand, the erasure of children as a mark of futurity is queer and useful for imagining, you know, politics that aren't heterosexual and aren't heterosocial and that aren't about replicating the nation through the heterosexual family. But then also when we're not thinking about children and we're privatizing public education, that means that we're not actually all in it together. And so the erasure of children, it has the potential to be really radical and to redistribute labor, especially care labor, in ways that increase pleasure and increase, especially women's opportunities about imagining what pleasure might look like for them. In this particular political moment, it means like three and a half million Puerto Ricans <laughs> are going to get fucked. That's what it means. Not a moment of optimism, I don't think. You know, but the erasure of children and the privatization of public education is a canary in the coal mine for the fact that we cannot anticipate or imagine the future together. Thanks for listening. These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by or on behalf of the University of Arkansas Fayetteville.